At this point, if you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. In your pew Bible, it's page 1694. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Uh, and I encourage you, please do, even after we read the passage, continue to follow along. There's going to be four key aspects, but we're going to keep coming back to just these few verses as we examine, uh, take a peek at the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the word of the Lord. Starting from verse 41, just to give us some context. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, and then 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, last week we looked at the simplicity of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way we are saved. It's not by being good, not by being perfect, and the time is now. God, we thank you for a peek into what it looks like when this group of people who have asked for your forgiveness come together. We thank you for uh, being able to look at the formation of the church. God, the church is made up of sinners. And therefore, we admit that we are broken people. Broken. And when we come together, sometimes there's tension, sometimes there's conflict. But God, we thank you that the thing that binds us together is that we are called by the name of our Savior, of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And God, though the physical reality may not always show this, spiritually, God, we are united. We are one body. And your church thrives when we are unified, and it suffers when we are not. God, I pray that we would continue to devote ourselves to these four things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, because that is how you work through your church. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way, this Sunday especially, that your spirit would speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The church is not a building. Sometimes that's hard to remember. Look around you. I mean, it's beautiful. If you look outside, the construction's going up, so it's, you know, in the back of our bulletin. We're, we're excited about a building project. and it's, That's a good thing, but when we think about the word church in the Scriptures... It's deeper than that. It's the people of God. But let me ask you, what makes a church a church? Is it because we're a 501c3? (laughs) Is it because we have church services on Sunday? What is it? I would encourage you, as we look through this passage, there are four things that characterize the church from its very inception, from its very beginning... And it characterizes the church today. When the people of God come together, there are some things that can come and go. You can sing hymns, you can sing praise songs, you can sing, you can sing antiphonally. There are some people that don't sing with instruments at all. Some of those things can be different. You can have a big building, you can have a little building. You can have carpet, you can have wood flooring. 
the different kinds of people in the church. You may speak English. You may speak Swahili. But the thing that characterizes the church are these four things. We should continue as Christians to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer because it is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. It proves that we are Christ, that we are His. Now, remember the context of this book uh, that Jesus uh, was just taken up into heaven and the Holy Spirit came down. And we had the first recorded sermon last week where Peter preached. And this gives us a picture into the formation of the church. Before this, we only had followers of Jesus Christ. But this defines how they lived life together. Because here's the thing. The church doesn't just happen on Sunday. It happens throughout the week. It happens when you interact, when you see each other, when you call yourselves on the phone, when you send that text to encourage. That's the church working. This is life together. So first, let's look at what it says. The apostles' teaching. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when the Great Commission was given, Jesus Christ said to teach them to observe all I have commanded you. Those were the last words before he went up to heaven. And that's exactly what they sought to do. Think about Peter's sermon. It was characterized from last week. It was characterized by the Old Testament, how the Old Testament looks to Christ. But also look at how the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus was unique. He wasn't just a good human being. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was unique. Not only did he rise from the dead, whoa, he ascended into heaven according to the scriptures. And that's the driving force, the proof. Remember, Luke is a physician. He's a historian. And so he's constantly giving exact pieces of information. He's showing the proof. Think back to the written Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It talks about how, Acts chapter 1 talked about how all those Gospels capture not just what Jesus said, but also what he did. He gave wonders and signs. And so here in this passage it says, as a result, they feared the Lord, it says in verse 43. Phobos, phobia. Now, Usually we don't like the word fear. It kind of makes us, you know, I don't want my kids to fear me. That means they don't love me, right? Is that right? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The teaching and the actions of the apostle. Here's the thing. First of all, they were afraid of God in some senses. God is bigger than us. A lot of times we shake the finger at God because we think we're the center of the universe. Newsflash, we're not. We are tiny specks in a tiny planet, in a massive universe. God is the judge. God is in control. And we, have, we should be afraid of a God who has that kind of power. But there's also a kind of fear that's a respect, because God cares for you. Yeah, growing up I was afraid of my dad. He was bigger and taller than me. But not because I was afraid that, honestly, I was afraid of disappointing him. That's respect. Fearing God. And we see that in this passage. We also see that the apostles were teaching. And what is it that they taught? One of the things they taught was generosity in verse 45. Think about Matthew 5. What does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They're also teaching fellowship in verse 46. In Ephesians chapter 1-3, it, it, it kind of gives an echo of this. And in Hebrews it does as well. It said, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. They also taught the importance of praising God in verse 47. We see that. Praise, Ephesians 1 says, Praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. These things that we read on in the New Testament were there from the very beginning. They were teaching to praise the Lord. They were teaching these core principles, who Jesus was, who God was, and how we should respond to Him. 
The saving work of Jesus Christ, the importance of the Old Testament, the transformative words and actions of Jesus, the life of a Christian, each of these were part of the message preached by those who followed Jesus. And it's the same today. You need to know Jesus. He's the fulfillment of this whole book. It centers on Him. His love for you will change you to live a life that looks, like, that looks more like Him. The apostles' teaching from the beginning is what continues today. The center of our worship service, it's humbling, but it's the preaching of the Word. It's the teaching. Pick the wrong guy to do it. But that's the center of it, the apostles' teaching. And that's why we try to protect this pulpit so carefully. Because that's the center of our knowing who God is. And it's our center of knowing how we should live life together. Another very vital part, if you look at this passage, is fellowship. Throughout the gospel, Jesus, throughout the gospels, Jesus was what brought them to God, together. Think about it. The calling of the 12 disciples. He was bringing them together. The sermons and the miracles of Jesus, oftentimes it talks about how the crowds milled around him. And he would go on walks and people were crowding around him. Think also even to the crucifixion. The weird thing about the crucifixion was that Jesus was almost completely alone. And the Gospels note that. Other than that, they were almost, he was almost constantly accompanied. At the crucifixion, people were afraid. John and a few of the ladies were there. They were the only ones. But it makes a big point of the fact that a lot of people weren't there. Fellowship was a huge part of what Jesus did. And then if you look at the book of Acts, after Jesus has gone up to heaven, Acts 1.12, Acts 2.1, they were still together. Why? Because of Jesus. Fellowship continued to be the very center of what they were doing. In verse 41, it talks about those who received, but then later on it talks about those who believed here. And what does it say about these people? What does it talk about their, their, their fellowship? What does it mean? What does it look like? Verse 44, they were always together and they had everything in common. They shared with one another. They heard someone had a need and they tried to take care of it, sometimes with that person ever knowing who had done it. Not because they wanted credit. They wanted to care for others. John the Baptist, even before Jesus had even come, they asked him, what should we do? What does a Christian life look like? What is a, a follower of this Messiah that's coming? What does that look like? This is what he said. The man who has two tunics should share with the one who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. It talks in verse 45 how they were selling their possessions and they gave to those who had need. Here's the thing. Sharing, giving, gener being generous, caring for one another, it doesn't work out in numbers. It doesn't help you financially. So if you're trying to get financially ahead, being generous is the last thing you want to do. But man, it feeds your soul. We were made to love God and love others. And when we see people loving one another, oh, it makes us, oh, we love it, even if we're not Christians. Fellowship of the saints. They knew each other's needs. Most people don't like to ask for help. I'm one of those. I got it. I'm good. So what does that mean? Keep your ears. Keep your eyes open. Look for those needs that others have. You helping is a recognition that one day you will need help as well. So just as you are, should, are called to give help, you should also be willing to receive it. Let the church of God care for you. We talked about that in Sunday school, by the way. It's not a coinkydink. They also realized that their property had a higher purpose. Think about that. How your time, how your home, your paycheck. Now, what is the purpose of what you call yours? My time, my home, uh, my, 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 my salary. Is it yours? What does that mean? 
Or does it serve a larger purpose than your comfort and your happiness? Okay, I can give some, but this section is mine. Okay. That's fine. But think about what it means when we tell our kids to share. Our daughter has a book called The Big Minosaur. That was, you know, you read it to her and it's like, the, or Llama Llama Share, you know, there's, there's all these books. Share, share, share. But then I've got this stuff that, don't touch it. Do we, do we share our time? Do we share our home? Do we invite others to come into our home? Fellowship, that's what it's talking about here. There's a, there's a story, I, I stuck it in the newsletter in August, so in July. So if you haven't read it and you just threw it away. Um, there's a story of a woman named Margaret Baxter. Her husband was really famous. Uh, but early on in life, uh, he served the church. He was a really famous pastor. Uh, but then he married this woman. And at the beginning of his life, he said, sure, generosity is important, yada, yada, yada. That's sort of the way he talked about it. But then toward the end of his life, he said, generosity should be one of the center points of the Christian life. Why? Because he saw it in his wife. The way she lived her life, she lived to care for others. Sometimes it was in a time when it was illegal to preach, so you had to pay fines to get preachers out of prison. So she would pay those fines, and then sometimes a congregation couldn't afford a pastor, and she was the one that funded it because she had a, 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 a group of money that her, her mother had left her, and that's what she decided to use it for. She started several schools, at first with other people, that, but then the other people dropped out, and so she funded them herself. She's one of the first people to make uh, education accessible to the poor. Her time period. Her name was Margaret Baxter. Now, no one ever talks about her, but she transformed her husband's life because by the end of his life, he said no. Generosity should be what characterizes us as Christians. And voluntary giving, the Greek word here is koinonia, or koina, and it's, it's throughout this passage, but this has an eschatological and social perspective that causes them to sell and share. You see, they weren't just thinking about the present. They were thinking about the future. Eschatological, it's a big fancy word for just looking to the day when Jesus comes again. And it's realizing, I want to look Jesus in the eye and be able to say, I didn't just use the things you gave me for me. And a social perspective that realizes that we are united. And we are called to care for each other. What does verse 46 says? What else does their fellowship look like? They continued to meet in the temple. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together. This, this word continued is, is key, is one of the key words in this passage. It comes up over and over. So that means they just didn't do it one time. They continued to do it. And besides meeting in the sacred space, which is at that time the temple, they also met in each other's homes. That's what it says in this passage. They liked being together. <gasps> You get to have fun with people from church. You get to be friends. What? It's allowed. They did it. And the two-word combo, when they met together, what did it look like? They had joy and sincerity. It wasn't, oh, okay, i got to have dinner with somebody. They loved it. It was with sincere hearts. It was with joyful hearts. They loved being together. That's what characterized this fellowship. And this word koinonia, it appears, all, this word fellowship appears all over the Bible. But it's not just fellowship with each other. Literally, in the Bible it interchanges. Either it's fellowship with each other or it's fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 10, when it's talk, talking about uh, uh, the Lord's Supper, it says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? That, the, that participation, fellowship is the same word. And is not the bread a participation in the body of Christ? Literally, the fellowship that we have with Christ happens when we eat the Lord's Supper. Or when it talks about marriage, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? There's a connection there. This word fellowship 
is, is talking about intimacy, yes, in marriage, and intimacy with each other, and intimacy with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. I've got a whole list of these. It's amazing. Throughout the Scriptures, this is one of the key words that drives the entire Bible. Fellowship is not an optional part of Christianity. It is one of the four fundamental parts. The word for fellowship with God and with each other is used in the exact same way. You cannot say you have fellowship with God if you refuse to have fellowship with each other. This idea of sharing meals together, inviting families into your home, doing things together, it is essential, not optional. Don't just invite people like you. Invite all sorts of people. Branch out. Who knows? You might end up best friends. In high school, there's this kid who made fun of me all the time. That was weird. I'll be honest. Tenth grade. Ooh, what a haircut. But one day he invited, he said, come on over to my house. Let's watch a movie. We sat in folding chairs. I kid you not. Folding chairs. We watched a movie. Last two years of high school, we were best friends. He reached out to the weird kid. That was me. So we're still friends. You never know. Invite the weird kid. That's what I used to tell our middle schoolers. They might become really good friends. The other thing that they dedicated themselves to was the breaking of bread. Verses 42 and 46 use the exact same imagery. Now, there's a little bit of this. Uh, follow with me. This is, this is kind of interesting because in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Jesus breaks the bread in the Last Supper. So that may be what this is talking about. But then in Luke 24, Jesus breaks bread to prove that he's risen from the dead, and he just eats with them. And then after Acts 2, there are several times that Paul broke bread, once in chapter 20, when he talked until daybreak, literally he preached all night long, someone fell out of the window, they prayed for him, he came back to life, they brought him back in, and he kept preaching until daybreak. We're not going to do that, I can't do that, uh, not today. Um, but, and after they break bread together at the beginning and at the end, in chapter 27, they're, they're about to have a big shipwreck, and Paul knows it, and he says, guys, this storm, we're not going to make it, but we need to eat together. And so he breaks bread with them, so sometimes it was just eating together. This fellowship and the breaking bread appears in 1 Corinthians 10.16, right before the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11. So this is an essential part of fellowship. But it goes even deeper than that. Open up your Red Trinity hymnal. We're not done yet. Red Trinity hymnal. It's to page 864. Page 864. One of the things we have in this handy-dandy book is the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's what we adhere to uh, in this church. And it's essentially a, a, a document that tries to outline, if you have a question about something, a lot of times this gives you direction. And it has the scripture passages and things like that. But if you look on page 864, chapter 26, it talks about the communion of saints, then below that the sacraments, below that baptism, and some other things. If you look at 27, 28, and 29, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, each of these refer to what it is that we share. The sacraments are holy signs and seal of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits and to confirm our interest in Him. Look at number two there. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relationship between the sign and the things signified. See, when we, for example, do a baptism, or when we have the Lord's Supper together, there's a very real spiritual thing that happens. 
And that binds us together. So even when we're talking about fellowship, the breaking of bread and the being together, something very real spiritually is happening. There's a spiritual union between the thing, the sign and the thing signified. The waters of baptism refer to salvation. They don't save her. She's not saved. Sadie Reed isn't saved because she was baptized. But it represents the engrafting into the Christ, the regeneration, the remission of sins, the walking in the newness of life. And so we trust God that He will draw her heart to Him and she will commit to Him. We're trusting Him in the same way we do for an adult, we do for a child. Or for example, with, with the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood of Christ, the bread, the, it refers to the bread and the wine. And no, the, the, the bread and the wine don't become the actual physical body of Christ, but there's this, as, there's this spiritual aspect of how it perpetually remembers the sealing of the benefits, the spiritual nourishment, growth, the bond, the pledge of communion with Him and with each other. That's what this describes. That's what God's, the Word describes. You see, when it talks about breaking of bread, it has to be both of these. It can't just be one. This term is interchangeable. For eating together, yes, and being together, but also for celebrating the Lord's Supper and remembering the spiritual reality that happened. There's a clear distinction made between fellowship and the breaking of bread. And even verse 41, it talks about how baptism is absolutely central for those who became Christians. Yes, they had meals together, but they also prioritized the Lord's Supper. They celebrated what made them different from the world. And they obeyed Christ's command. He said at the, at, in, the, in those sections, every single one of those sections where it talks about uh, the Lord's Supper, he says, do this until I return. And so they obeyed Christ's command until he returns. And we do the same. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate baptism, we remember through these physical, physical elements. The last thing that they dedicated to themselves to this church was prayer. Prayer. Talking with God. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus prayed all night before choosing his disciples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed all night. He asked his disciples to do the same, but they fell asleep. But Jesus prayed, knowing he needed to... The Son of God needed his Father. Do you pray? Jesus was praying when he taught his disciples to pray. I mean, literally, in in Luke chapter 11, it says that he was praying, and his disciples said, hey, what are you doing? Teach us how to pray. And that's what we just did. He was praying when he taught how to pray. It was central to his daily ministry. And the key points of his ministry, when he was choosing the 12, when he was about to die, he recognized, I need God. When you get stressed out, what do you do? Make a list? Lay in bed worrying about it? Or do you pray? spend all night praying. And so far in Acts, as we've seen in Acts 124, they pray before the choosing of Matthias. And if we consider prayer to be an extension of fellowship with God, just talking to God, it happened in each one of the occurrences thus far, talking with Jesus before his ascension, together when the Holy Spirit came. And and even in in Peter's sermon, I'm sure that people were, were praying. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that I'm sure people were praying when Peter was preaching? Here's why. Me standing up here and talking doesn't matter. I can't convince you of anything. I'm a terrible salesman. I could never sell a car to anyone. My words aren't that special. The only time these words make any difference is if the Holy Spirit is working. My education, my goofy mannerisms, 
All that's going to do is distract you. If anything of this actually matters, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. There's a famous pastor called C.H. Spurgeon who preached. He was a, uh, a Reformed Baptist minister. And there's one time that five young college students were spending a Sunday in London, so they went to hear this famous man preached. And while they were waiting for the doors to open, the students were greeted by a man who asked, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of the church? They weren't really interested. It was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented. The young men were taken down a stairway, and it was, the door was quietly opened, and their guide whispered, This is our heating plant. Surprised, the students peeked in and saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Spurgeon. He would refuse it. People would ask him to come to their church, and he would refuse to do it unless people were praying in the basement. He said, because otherwise it doesn't matter. This was the most famous preacher in the early 1900s. Do you know what we do here at 9.30 in the morning? We're about 9 this morning, which, hey, numbers don't matter. We pray. We walk up and down these aisles and pray for the people that we know will be sitting in these pews. We pray for the choir. We pray for the sermon. We pray for the baptism. We pray for you. We pray for each other. That God would transform us. That Christ would change us. I'd encourage you, make prayer a priority. You see, the prayers of the saints are the most important part of the church service. In this hour, we can do nothing. I mean, we, we can do this. We can do this service without a microphone. We can do it without air conditioning. But we cannot do it without prayer. Did you pray this morning? In your weekly service to your kids, kids' ministry, uh, visiting each other, did you pray? We can do without snacks. We can do without, we used to do uh, uh, our kids' ministry to the school. We can do without the goofy puppets that I used to do. Um, or, or, you know, we can visit each other without bringing a bowl of soup. But can you do it without prayer? My answer is no. That is the most important part, and it costs nothing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit drives the work of the church. Do you serve the church? Do you pray before you serve the church? Do you pray for your church? So I'd encourage you, even as we examine these things, these should be the four main things that drive what we do, yes, in this service, but also in the, in the week, in the, day, in the day-to-day grind, so to speak. What's amazing, though, is in the second century, the church was being persecuted. They were being killed off methodically, in different areas and sometimes empire-wide throughout the Roman Empire. But you see these same four things characterizing the church. Pliny wrote a letter. Uh, he was having to, uh, Pliny wrote a letter to Trajan, and he was having to uh, punish Christians. And he was, he was kind of a, a governor who did what he was told, but he wasn't sure why. And, 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 he, and he writes a letter to the emperor, and he says, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to kill these Christians. I'm really not sure. I'm, I mean, I'm doing it. I'm killing them off. But when I seriously ask them what it is that they do, this is what they say. They meet before daybreak to pray. They recite hymns antiphonally to Christ as to God. They bind themselves to an oath to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, and breach of faith. They do not deny a deposit when it was claimed, so they help one another, generosity, and they meet again to take food almost every day. So he said, when I really press them for what makes them different and what they did in their secret meetings, that's all they were doing. Am I really supposed to kill them? And we still have a record of this letter. That was what the first, in 112, second century Christians were doing. 
There's another man whose name was Athenagoras, but uh, at the time, Christians were being killed for three things. Christians were being accused of being atheists, cannibals, and of committing incest. Now we say, those are pretty bad. But here's why. And Athenagoras writes this. Atheism, one, because they didn't believe in the Greek gods. They claimed that there was only one true God, that Jesus Christ was the Son, that His Holy Spirit was always with us. Because they didn't consider the other gods gods, they were called atheists, and so they were killed. They were considered cannibals because they sat together often to eat of the body and the blood of Christ. That's what they called it, and people on the outside are like, ooh. And incest, what do we call each other? Hey, brother, hey, sister, in Christ. They bound themselves to be wed to someone who was a believer. So they were killed because they had they actually married their brother and sister. No, and Athenagoras shows and he says, no, this is just part of our faith. What's astounding is the same things that the apostles are saying here in Acts chapter 2 are the same things that the apostles were doing then, and it's the same thing that they were doing now. In fact, Christians were mocked for saving babies in the second century because uh, oftentimes they didn't want to keep the girls, and so the Christians would take them in and take care of them. And they were mocked for that that characterize our faith today see the practice of the church we meet together maybe not before dawn if you want we can change that just kidding to study god's word that we dedicate ourselves to the fellowship to eating together to having covered this lunches to inviting each other over to each other's house and to the lord's supper we're dedicated to helping the poor and the helpless we're dedicating ourselves to prayer but i encourage you be encouraged god has preserved his church here on other corners of this town throughout the world he cares for us sometimes i don't even know why but he does and the same things that characterize the church then characterize the church today but the other thing i want to encourage you remember that key word continued continue to devote yourself to the apostles teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer Let's do that now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your church. We thank you for your people. And we thank you for these things that characterize your church. Father, I pray that we would throw ourselves into your work because we love you. Pray that our fellowship, that the teaching, the breaking of bread, our prayers would all be characterized for our love for you and our love for each other that we would continue to devote ourselves, that it wouldn't be what we just do when we have time, but it would be at the forefront of our mind. God, how can we do it more? God, for those who have never done it, I pray that you would use us to stir in those who don't know you a curiosity, to want to know what it is that those people have. Why do they like hanging out with each other? And that they would understand the love of Jesus Christ because of our love for each other. That we'd be able to move beyond our differences, our, our, even our methodological differences, to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ and to be able to prove to the world that you've changed us. That you love us. You've made us for yourself. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.